Amen. Thank you, Todd and praise team for leading us in worship. And um, my name's Jake. I'm the associate pastor here, our lead pastor, Dr. Cox. We want to continue to pray for him as uh, he's in his final days of quarantine for COVID-19. But we do want to take a minute to pray. We want to pray not only for Dr. Cox, we want to pray for Cindy, who found out on Friday that she also tested positive. So um, Dr. Cox had a couple of rough days on Wednesday and Thursday. He's doing better now. But now Cindy's hitting those, those tough days in day five through seven. And so we want to pray for her. We also want to pray for Daniel and Penny Dish, our administrator. Um, they've also tested. And listen, I know there's been many in our church uh, who have tested positive as well. Uh, we want to pray for our church staff. We want to pray for our church. We want to pray for protection. We want to pray for the end of this pandemic, that God would do that. Um, But right now, would you just join me in prayer for our pastor, our church staff, our church, and ultimately for God's protection over us. Would you pray with me? God, you are good, and you work out all things for the good. So God, right now, I just want to pray for Dr. Cox as he's recovering. I pray healing over him and Cindy. The same thing with Daniel and Penny and many in our church um, who are battling this virus. God, God, would you be with them? Heal them. God, I pray that you would protect us. Lord, we know you can. And God, we trust you in in every moment of this. We pray for the end of this pandemic. And God, we trust you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We're in a series of sermons entitled, How Great is Our God? And we're looking through the book of Isaiah in chapter 40 through 45. And today we turn our gaze to chapter 44. And as you turn there, I'll start off by just sharing, I love people who love to laugh. You know what I'm talking about? Like you ever got a person in your life who's just great at laughing? They've got a great laugh. My wife is one of those. If you ever get Katie laughing, it's hilarious. Um, There are times she will get laughing at a movie and I'll forget the source of the laughter because I'm just laughing at what she's laughing, that she's laughing. It's hilarious. Uh, another person is John Bell. There was one time where Johnny Bell and Katie were sitting next to each other at this like comedy, Christian comedy simulcast our church did. And the two of them laughing, I don't even remember who the comedian was. All I remember is that it was hilarious to watch them laugh. I'll give you another person who's like that. Doug Hodges, right? I can't tell you how many stories of people say, we were laughing with Doug and Doug got to laughing and we got to laughing and we don't even know what we're laughing about anymore because Doug was so funny. Um, This week, all week, we've talked about Jim Crosland and his infectious laugh and how he was one of the best, had one of the best laughs of anybody we know. The reason I bring that up is that in the Bible, The laughter of God, it's not always a good thing. Let me show you what I mean here. In Psalm uh, chapter 2, it says this. The kings of the earth rise up, rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. You jump over to Psalm 37. It says the wicked plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth against them. But the Lord laughs at the wicked for he knows their day is coming. Finally, you look at Psalm 
59, it says, You laugh at them, Lord. You scoff at all of those nations. What we see here in Isaiah 44 is we hear God's laughter as he mocks those who make idols and engage in idolatry. So here's the big idea. If I could give you uh, the message in just a sentence, it would be this. There is no one like our God. And the laughter of the Lord in this chapter is meant to jar those who engage in idolatry and wake them up so that they will turn back to the one true God. And so the flow of the message is going to look like this. We'll start out and we'll look at what Isaiah 44 teaches us about God. And then after that, we're going to look at what this chapter teaches us about humanity. And then the final thing we're going to do is we're going to look at what we should do in light of all of this. So we start off here in the first part. What does Isaiah 44 teach us about God? And here's, here's the context. God's people are in exile and so many of them have passed away either through sword, famine, or plague, that they start looking around at their low numbers and the small remnant, and they're thinking, how are we going to survive this? And their question for God is, how will you rebuild the nation? Where are all the children going to come from? And God's answer to them is, I'm able to rise up a new nation. More than that, I'm able to give you strength and to help you flourish. And so here's the first thing we learn about God from the text. God creates all things from nothing. Look at verse 1. But now listen. Parents, have you ever said that to your kids? Okay, okay. Listen, right? That's what God's doing to us here. Listen, Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I've chosen. This is what the Lord says. He who made you, who formed you in the womb, and who will help you. Don't be afraid, Jacob, my servant. Jeserim who I have chosen. So God knows that faith comes from hearing. And what he needs to do to his people right now is he needs to get his word into their hearts. So he starts by saying, listen, I need you to hear my word. And he calls his people by a multitude of names. The, the first name he calls them is Jacob. The name Jacob means deceiver. Don't trust anybody by the name of Jacob. Unless it's one of your pastors, and then he's okay. You can trust him. But he starts off by calling him Jacob, deceiver. But then the next name he calls him is Jeserun, which means my righteous one. Now, these people are not righteous. There's no one righteous, no, not one. But what God is saying here is, I'm going to make you righteous. And this is pointing us to the cross of Jesus, where you and I and them are made righteous through the blood of Christ. They are made righteous by trusting that the Messiah will come. We are made righteous by the finished work and placing our faith in Jesus. But I love the reminders that he gives them. He says, I chose you. He tells them that twice. Then he tells them, I formed you even before you were born. This is why we fight for the unborn. Because God cares about us even before our birth. And he says, I promise I'm going to help you. But look how God is going to help them. Look at verse 3. For I will pour water on thirsty land, streams on the dry ground, and I will pour my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. God is able to take our cursed earth and make it flourish. And what God does here is he takes the physical world 
and he makes a parallel to the spiritual world and what he does. And he says, listen, I'm going to pour my spirit out on you and out on your offspring and I will rise up a nation through you. And this pouring out of the spirit should bring us back to to Acts chapter 2 where it says in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old sons and daughters will prophesy. Our younger men will see visions. Old men will dream dreams. And what he's saying here is that in the same way that I'm able to take this broken world and make it flourish, I can take your brokenness and transform it, make it healthy and flourish as well. So the result is this. God is going to raise up children from the dust of the exile in the same way that he took Adam and raised him up from the dust of the earth. Look at verse 4. They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. They said, God, there's not enough of us to survive the exile. And God says, I can take Nothing and create all things, right? Not only am I going to provide you people, I'm going to put a new heart in my people. Here's the principle we have, to, we have to understand. If the gospel was a math equation, it would look like this. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. God doesn't need us, Right? He can create all things from nothing. But God chooses to have a relationship with us. He wants us to know him. Isn't that incredible? There is no one like our God. So here's the second thing I want you to see about God. God explains the past and he controls the future. Look at verse 6. This is what the Lord says, Israel's king and redeemer. The Lord Almighty, I am the first and the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. So he's going to issue a challenge. And he says, bring out your idols. Bring out your other gods. Let's see if they're like me. He says, let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yes, let them foretell what will come. Verse 8, do not tremble, do not be afraid. Did not not proclaim this and foretell it long ago. You are my witnesses. Are there any gods besides me? No. There's no other rock. No, not one. So here's the basic summary. You ready? There's no one like our God. Right? He lays out this challenge. You bring your rocks. You bring your wood-carved idols. And I tell you what. Have them lay out before you in stacks the events of human history. And the Hebrew word for layout, it literally means a detailed order of what has happened. God says, I can tell you what happened before creation. I can tell you what happened at creation. I can tell you what happened with the ancient people and all of human history. I can lay out to you the origins. Can your idols do that? Are there any human beings who can do that? Can any creature do that? The answer is no. And then God says, not only can I tell you all of human history, but I can even tell you what's going to happen in the future. Because I predict and I control the future. And the point Isaiah is making here right now is that the gap between God the creator and all of the creation, the gap in between them is infinite. 
He creates all things from nothing. He knows all things. He controls the future. There is no one like our God. This is what we learn about God here in the text. But let's turn now and let's look at what it says about humanity. The first thing it teaches us is this. We become like what we worship. Now there's a a big chunk there of scripture. We're not going to go through all of it. I'll summarize a portion. But we start here in verse 9. It says, all who make idols are nothing. Now that, that sounds like a really harsh statement, doesn't it? Until you can consider this truth that we become like what we worship. You see, what you worship, you eventually will imitate. Believers are becoming more and more into the image of Christ. And that happens because of our worship of God. And the more and more we worship him, the more and more we'll imitate him and become like him. This is why corporate worship is so important. This is why we need to gather together. But idolaters gradually become more and more worthless because they worship worthless idols. So the verse continues, he says, And the things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They are ignorant to their own shame. He says, says, listen, they're, they're blind because what they worship is blind. And your idol benefits you in no way. Your idol can't help you. It doesn't benefit you. And actually, it's harming you in your worship of it. So look at verse 11. He and his kind will be put to shame. Craftsmen are nothing compared, are nothing but men. Let them all come together, take their stand. They will be brought down in terror and infamy. He says the end result of idolatry is the wrath of God, judgment, shame, and fear when the Lord comes in judgment. The next couple of verses, verses 12 through 17, is supposed to be satire. It almost reads like the Christian satire website, the Babylon Bee, right? I don't know if you've ever seen that before, but there is a a Christian satire website called Babylon Bee. This just reads like it would be in the Babylon Bee. Let Let me show you. He takes us into the workshop of an idol maker, and he looks at the iron worker first. And he says the iron worker, first he has to create a fire, and then he works the iron all day long. And if he's not careful, if he doesn't bring water or if he doesn't pack his lunch, he's going to grow tired. And then he compares that to the one true God. And he says, our God never grows weary or tired or faints. There's nothing that can wear him out. God doesn't have to build a fire. He is an all-consuming fire that can light tons of logs and never diminish in strength. And then he says, the iron worker at the end of the day He sits down and he's exhausted. He goes to sleep and guess what? God keeps working. And then he takes us to uh, the the carpenter. He says the carpenter does the same thing, but he has a different medium. He will draw the line, measure. He takes his chisel. He chisels out anything that doesn't look like God to him. He starts living his own truth. Oh, I don't think God is like that. I'm going to make it more like this. He realizes that God may have made him in his image, but now he's going to return the favor 
And he wants to create a God that reflects what he wants him to look like or a God of his own imagination, a God of his own image. And here's the truth. All idolatry is pretty much, it's self-worship. You're worshiping you. And so the satire goes a little, little longer. And now the idol maker who's, who's building his, carving his image out of wood, he runs out of wood. So he has to go find some more trees and eventually he runs out of trees. So he has to plant a grove of trees and the rain from God has to rain down on the trees in order for them to grow because you can't get away from the activity of God in your life, even if you reject him. And the point he's trying to make is, listen, even your creation of idols, you have to use the raw materials that God has provided And so the idol maker chops down a tree. He can't use all of the wood for his statue. So he takes some of the wood and he uses it to build a fire. And he eats his dinner from the fire that's made. He finishes his work and he looks at his idol and he says, oh, save me. Now here's the thing. The text is written to where the whole time God is kind of laughing at this. But, but it's not like a funny kind of laughter. I don't know about you. Have, have you ever looked back on your life and you remember something that you did and it was really embarrassing? Anybody like that? I've got many moments. In the last service, somebody was like, I was going to shout out no, so you would be the only one. But I'm pretty sure we're all like that, right? We all have really embarrassing moments in our lives. You ever look back on them and think, oh, what was I thinking? Why did I think that was a good idea? And then the only thing you're left to do is just kind of laugh at it and be like, well, can't change it now. Let's just move on, right? Or how about parents? Have you ever got so frustrated with your kids that you just kind of have to laugh in order to keep your composure? That's God right now. He's laughing, but it's not a good kind of laughter, right? His anger is burning, and he's just kind of laughing at the absurd things that are going on here. Now, the idol worshiper may reply back and rebut a little bit. He might say, I'm not worshiping the statue. The statue reflects a real God. But listen, that's how the text starts, right? But listen, if you can manipulate a God to do what you want, then your God is not in control, you are. And if you can tell a God, my will be done, then your God is not a God, it's your servant, And this is why Jesus models for us the posture of submission, where Jesus looks at the Father and says, not my will, but yours be done because your way, your way is better. We become like what we worship. And then the second thing we need to see this here is is this. um, We were hardwired. We were made to worship. Look at verse 21 here. Remember these things, O Jacob, for you're my servant, O Israel. I've made you. You are my servant, O Israel. I will not forget you. What's amazing to me is those words were written decades before the exile. They were written decades before God's people fell into idolatry. And he says, remember these things. But they didn't remember. And they fell into idolatry. But here's what's so amazing to me. Look at the next verse. I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sin like the morning mist. 
Return to me, for I've redeemed you. Notice here, God knew they would betray him. And yet he already planned in the, before it even happened that he would forgive them. He says, listen, I'm going to sweep away your sin like the morning mist, just like it never happened. Look at that type of grace. Look at that type of forgiveness. Who does that? There's no one. There is no one like our God. And so then he gives us the remedy for idolatry. And it's the final verse here, verse 23. Sing for joy, O heavens. For the Lord has done this. Shout aloud, O earth beneath. Burst into song, you mountains, you forests and all your trees. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob. He displays his glory in Israel. God has created us in such a way where we are hardwired for worship. It's unavoidable. You will worship something. You either worship the one true God or you worship something lesser. But the way that you protect yourself from idolatry is you sing for joy. You join in with creation. You display God's glory and you worship him. So what do we do in light of this passage? How do we apply this to our lives? Three quick things. Here's the first. Follow Jesus. Jesus who says, God, not my will, but your will be done. Submit your life to God. The definition of idolatry is to pursue anything more than Jesus. Many of us throughout this message, you thought, I, I don't have statues at home that I bow down to. This doesn't apply to me. But here's the deal. Idolatry is anything you want more than you want Jesus. What are you pursuing right now more than Christ? What are you wanting more than your relationship with him? Idols can be good things, can't they? That could be your family, your job, money, things that you need. But when a good thing becomes a God thing, it becomes a bad thing. To pursue anything more than Christ is idolatry. So let me pause here. Let me ask you, you have any idols in your life? Maybe you need to pause right now and ask the Lord, God, what am I pursuing more than you right now? Could you show me and help me to reprioritize Help me to get my life back in order to where I can say, I am seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. And then my life will be, my life will make sense. And all these things will be added to me the right way. The second thing we see here in the text, you got to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is what is going to empower you to pursue Christ. You can't do that in your own strength. You need the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. I love how God calls us to follow Jesus and then he gives us the power to do the thing he's called us to do. And so I, I think we've got to ask for this. Holy Spirit, empower me. And so I pray, pray a prayer like this as many times as possible throughout the day. Holy Spirit, help me. Fill me and keep me close to Jesus. I just wonder how many of us need to pray a prayer like that right now. Finally, the last thing as we apply this, trust in the sovereignty of God. 
There's a lot of idolatry in our, in our culture right now, right? We look around our world, we see a lot of idols. Sometimes it can make us anxious. It can make us angry. Put on top of that, we're in an election year. There's a lot of things that can rattle us right now, isn't there? But what did we see earlier? When God sees idolatry, what does he do? He laughs. Listen, if God can laugh, we can relax. We know he's got this. He's in control. He's working all things out for the good. Which is the last thing we need to see. Remember, God controls all of human history. He's working out all things for the good. And there is no one, no one like our God. Let's pray together. God, as we have looked at your word, I pray that we would live out this truth, that there's no one like you. God, if there's things in our lives we're pursuing more than you, God, would you redirect us right now? Change our hearts. Help us to reprioritize our lives and what matters to follow you. Help us to walk in the power of your Holy Spirit. May he empower us to live the lives we are called to live. Father, help us not to worry or be afraid right now and know that you are sovereign and in control. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today, as you ponder these things, if you'd like to talk more about having a relationship with Jesus, I'll be right out here at the Welcome Center. You just go out these doors, turn left, I'll be there. If you'd like to join our church, I'd love to help you in that. You just stop by the Welcome Center. Whatever it might be, if, if you want to talk to somebody or pray through some of the things that are going on in your life, we want to help you with that. But as we take a moment, let's do what this text says. Let's join in with all of creation. Let's praise the one true God because he is worthy.